All right, brothers and sisters, let's take out our Bibles, and if you will, turn with me today to the book of Exodus. And we're going to Exodus chapter 3 today, and then here in just a moment, after we look at a couple verses in chapter 3, we're going to go to Exodus 19. If you're not familiar with the way a Bible is laid out, Exodus is not too hard to find. It is the second book in your Bible, the very second book in your Bible right after Genesis. And so we're going to start in Exodus 3, and then here in a moment, Exodus 19. Now we're beginning today a series on Exodus 34 through 32. Exodus chapters 34 through 32 are really going to be our focus. We're not going to go through the entire book of Exodus in this series. Some of you are thanking the Lord for that. But we're going to go through Exodus 32 through 34 kind of in detail. And I'm here to tell you, I have waited years to preach this series. Legitimately, I've waited years. I am chomping at the bit to preach this series. This is my favorite part of the entire Old Testament, Exodus 32 through 34. I hope to show you over the next couple weeks, few months, maybe, depends on how long it's going to take us to get through, that this is a foundational, absolutely foundational part of your Bibles. It's foundational to the story of Israel. It's foundational to the story of salvation. It's foundational to the story of mankind. But it's really foundational to help us to understand who God is. We're going to see God as we go through Exodus 32 through 34. But today we need to take a step back a little bit and get some background information so that when we come up to Exodus 32, we understand where we're at. And so we're getting a little bit of background information today from Exodus 3 and Exodus 19. Now, have you ever been about to meet someone that you hadn't met before, and before you met them, you you found a picture of them, maybe online somewhere. And by that picture, you made all kinds of assumptions as to what kind of person this was going to be, right? I don't know if everybody else does this, but I do this. I do this all the time. I did it the other day. I was about to meet someone I had never met, and I found his picture online. And I saw that picture, and I had all these thoughts about this guy. Just based on that picture, he's going to be like this. This is the kind of guy he's going to be. And what happens when you finally meet him? They're not like that at all. It's not not even close to what you thought based on that picture. We made all these snap judgments based on the picture, and then we meet the person, and they're not who we thought they were going to be. Sometimes we look at a picture, and we think, that's going to be a really great, upstanding person full of integrity, and then you meet them, and within just a couple minutes, you lose all respect for them. They're immature. The way they talk turns you off, right? Or perhaps it happens like something like the other way. Every now and then I'll look at a picture of someone, and in my judgmentalism and my sinful judgmentalism, really, I'll look at a picture and I'll be like, that's probably going to be a person that doesn't really have a clue what's going on. I'm just judging them based on their picture. And then you meet them, you spend time around them, and you're like, they're actually really sharp. It's nothing like what I, what I thought. Perhaps this is God's way of helping us to learn not to judge by appearances. But we do this. I believe we all do. I believe it's human nature. And in the same way, everyone has their idea of what God is like. And in a sense, we get these ideas from all kinds of different places that are not the place that God has told us about who he is. We get our ideas about who God is from 
just rumors flying around, things that we've heard, our feelings. And we come to the Lord, we come to the Bible, we come to church with this idea of this is who God is. We've probably all got one right now in our heads. This is who God is. But one of the very best things that happens when we actually read our Bibles is that the Lord tells us who he really is and he surprises us in all kinds of ways. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. As you read through your Bible, you come across things that just blow your categories. The categories that you had in your head about who God is. And God wonderfully kind of explodes that box that you created for him to stay in, right? Well, today I hope that our text does that for you. We're coming to Exodus 3. We're going to read here in just a second verses 11 and 12. But in Exodus 3, we come upon one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. One of the most well-known stories. Kids in Sunday school class for decades and decades have heard this story. It's the story of the burning bush. Moses encountering God at a burning bush. God appears to Moses and speaks to him, but not in a way that you would expect. He appears to him as a bush that is burning but not getting burnt up. And then God speaks to Moses from the bush. This is the first encounter that the great man of God, Moses, has with God. And as he experiences God at this place, notice in verse 1 of chapter 3 where they're at. Verse 1 of chapter 3, notice where they're at. It says, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness... And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, the mountain of God. You might know it better by its other name, Mount Sinai. That's where they're at. Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, two different names for the same place, Mount Sinai. Now, why am I making such a big deal about the mountain, the place where they're at? Well, it's because when we come to Exodus 32 through 34, that's where they're at that whole time. That's the central location. But notice what God says in verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 3. It says, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And then God said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, remember what God's doing here as he shows himself to Moses at the burning bush. He says, Moses, you're my chosen instrument. You're my man. And I want you to be the man that goes and delivers the people out of the hand of Pharaoh and the slavery that they are under in Egypt. Moses is going to be the people that God uses to deliver the Israelites. But as you remember, you may remember, Moses is nervous about that charge. And Moses, as you can hear in verse 11, says, Who am I that you should choose me? He's not confident at all. Now, what's interesting is the sign that God gives to Moses. Moses is nervous about going, so God says, I'm going to give you a sign. Now, this is not the main point of the message today, but it's important for our series that we are beginning here. God says to Moses... Here's the sign that I'll give you. 
when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's the sign. In other words, God says to Moses, after the ten plagues, after the ten plagues, after the crossing of the Red Sea, I'm going to bring you and all the Israelites right back here. Right back to that same place where Moses was hearing God speak to him through a burning bush. Right back to Mount Sinai. Now what's interesting about this sign, though, is it comes after Moses' step of faith or obedience, you might say. It comes after. That's not what we would expect. When someone gets told by God to do something and they're nervous about it, and they're not sure, we would expect God to give them a sign right then and there to reassure them and to give them the confidence to go and do what God wanted them to do. But that's not what God does. Now, you might say, well, a bush that is burning and a voice coming outside of it, that 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 should be all the sign anyone would need. But Moses, even after seeing that and hearing God's voice, he's still nervous. He's still unsure. And God says, I'll give you a sign, but not before. I'll give you a sign after your obedience, after you take that step of faith. That's not the way we would typically think of God giving a sign to reassure someone. It's not what happens here. God takes the initiative to tell Moses, Moses, you obey me first. You take a step of faith first, and then I will reassure you. Then I will confirm you in your faith. Put your trust in me, Moses, and act on that faith, and then see what I will do for you. That's what God is saying. Now, we actually see that God do this exact thing a number of times in Scripture. He does this all over Scripture, giving a sign only after the obedience and after the step of faith is taken. For example, listen to Malachi 3.10. God tells the Israelites, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, what's God saying there? Well, remember the, in the old covenant, God told the Israelites, I want you to give a tenth of all of your harvest to me. Right. And they would tithe. That means a tenth. They would tithe to the Lord. And God says to them, Pull, bring, bring the full tithe in. Give me the full tithe and then see what happens. If you act in faith and in trust in what I am telling you, see if I do not bless you. With so much blessing coming down, there will not be any more need. Or listen to God's words through the prophet David in Psalm 37, verse 4. David writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord first. And if you do, he will satisfy you your heart. Or perhaps listen to the words of the Lord in Jeremiah 29 verse 13, where God promises the Israelites, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It's one of my favorite promises in all of scripture. God says, if you seek me with all your heart, I will make sure that you find me. What a wonderful promise from the Lord. If you seek me with all your heart, I will make sure. See what happens if you seek me with all your heart. 
Or perhaps the most famous example of God giving a future sign comes in that Christmas story prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A prophecy of Jesus. 500 to 700 years before Jesus would even be born, Isaiah gave that prophecy and said, The Lord will give a sign, but the sign's not coming until much later. You see, God is waiting to see who will take that step of faith. God is waiting to see who will take a step of faith in obedience to him. He's not going to appear to you and remove all doubt. He's not going to make it blatantly obvious. As we sometimes sing that wonderful hymn, Jesus is tenderly calling. God is drawing you out. Right? He's not going to make it blatantly obvious. He's not going to hit you upside the head. God is patiently waiting to see who will take that step of faith. And if you do, Watch and see if God does not reassure you and confirm you in your faith in all kinds of ways. The step of obedience must come first, and then the sign of affirmation comes after. Now, I want to go with you now to Exodus 19. And so turn in your Bibles with me over just a few pages to Exodus chapter 19. And here we get really to the crux of our message today. Exodus 19, and we're going to start in verse 16 here in just a second. Now what you just skipped over in the book of Exodus was the ten plagues in the Red Sea. You just skipped over it. right? We didn't cover that. But that was in Exodus chapters 3 through 19. That was in all of that. You skipped over it. But now we come to after that has already happened, after God has already delivered the Israelites out of the hand of Egypt and Pharaoh through all of those miraculous plagues, and then through the the parting of the Red Sea as the Israelites went through on dry ground, and he closed it back over the Egyptians and Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites. And after all of that, where do Moses and the Israelites end up? Right where God said they would. They're right back at the same mountain. Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. God's sign has indeed come to pass now that we reach Exodus 19. And now, God shows up. And you might say, didn't God show up in the ten plagues? Didn't God show up when he parted the Red Sea? No, No, he didn't. He did those things while remaining hidden himself. But now he comes down. Watch what happens. Exodus 19, starting in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses, called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Now, can you picture this scene in your mind? Can you picture what it must have been like to have been at the foot of Mount Sinai when this is happening? Notice how God descends on the mountain in thunder and lightning and smoke and fire. Notice how the whole mountain is shaking. God has shown up. And how do people feel when God shows up? Does everybody feel happy? Does everybody feel peaceful? Does everybody feel nice and calm when God shows up? No. They fear for their lives. God is dangerous. He's dangerous. He is dangerous, my friends. This is no sweet old grandpa in the sky handing out candy to children and patting them on the head. This is no nonchalant God who just sweeps it under the rug when people disobey his commandments. This is not chicken soup for the soul here. Some people paint this picture of God like he exists to make us smile and boost our self-esteem. So often we want a God we can control. We want a God that will fit in our back pockets. We want a God that's going to stay within the bounds of this box that we've created for him. Yes, God is merciful and compassionate, brothers and sisters. That is true, immensely true of God. God's going to say that about himself in our series that we go through in Exodus 34. Yes, he is love. But Hebrews tells us our God is also a consuming fire. And when he shows up, people tremble and fall on their faces in humility and fear. Do you remember C.S. Lewis's wonderful kid stories, The Chronicles of Narnia? Remember the, the lion figure, Aslan? He's, he's kind of the, the God figure, the Christ figure, if you will, in those stories. Aslan the lion, he's the, the main character in all of them. And throughout the books, there are these quotes about Aslan, how he's not a tame lion, and he's not safe. He's good. He's immensely good, but he's not tame, and he's not safe. 
We need to rediscover this aspect of God in our day. Christians in our day need to rediscover this, that he is dangerous. We need to rediscover the fear of the Lord. Notice in our text that the people in the camp and even the mountain know how to properly respond when God shows up. Look at the end of verse 16. The end of verse 16, it says, all the people in the camp did what? They trembled. And then look at the end of verse 18. The whole mountain trembled greatly. Even a mountain knows what to do when God shows up. When we're in the presence of God, even the mountain knows what to do. It is a good and proper thing, brothers and sisters, for us to tremble in the presence of the Lord. Let me quote you just a few texts from the Bible. For instance, Psalm 119, verse 120. In Psalm 119, that's that big, long psalm where the psalmist is constantly saying, Oh God, how I love your law. Your precepts are right and good. I love them so much. But in the middle of that psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, he says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Or listen to what God himself says in Isaiah 66, verse 2. It says, but this is the one to whom I will look. Who is the one that God pays attention to? Who is the kind of person that God looks to? This kind of person. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Or let's go to the New Testament. Philippians 2, verse 12, the words of Paul. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now understand, brother and sister, if you are in Christ today, this is the God who is on your side. If you're in Christ today, this is the God who's on your side. It's a wonderfully encouraging and comforting thought to know God in all his glory and all his dangerous qualities, and yet to know he is on your side, right? He's on your side. This is the God who will defeat your enemies if you humble yourself before him and come to him on his terms through his son, Jesus. And so This does not mean that Christians need to walk around all the time afraid of what God might do to us. No, we are covered by the blood of Christ. We are God's children in Christ. But in our day, we have so overemphasized the love and the forgiveness and the mercy of God that we have forgotten who he is. It is only by Christ that we can come before God with confidence in his mercy and forgiveness. It's only by the blood of Christ. Because this is not just the God who is on the side of his children, but this is also the God who will use his frightening and awesome power against you if you do not come to him through his son, Jesus. Romans 5 tells us that apart from Christ, we are God's enemies. And of all the people and all the beings in the universe, this is the one being whom you do not want to be his enemy. But apart from Christ, Romans 5 tells us that's exactly what we are. All of us who are in Christ today, it says, Romans 5.10, before you were in Christ, you were God's enemy. If you have not come to him through Christ, you are still 
God's enemy. This God's enemy. So many people today say, I I just think that if I try to be a good person, God will be okay with that. My friends, this is a foolish statement spoken out of ignorance for who God really is. He's dangerous. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me in our text. Verse 21 says, The Lord told Moses, Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Do you notice that? God says, don't let them come up here and look. Perhaps someone in their curiosity wanted to go see what was concealed by the cloud of smoke. But if they did, they would die. In fact, we're going to learn about that important principle in upcoming weeks because in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, Moses, no one can see me in my unveiled glory and live to tell about it. If you see me, you die. That's God. You can't see God. If you do, you'll die. We'll see that in upcoming weeks. Notice verse 22. Verse 22 says, About the priest, they must consecrate themselves. And then God says, lest the Lord break out against them. He says the same thing at the end of verse 24. Don't let the people through, lest the Lord break out against them. It almost seems involuntary. God's going to break out against them. What is this? How do we understand this? We actually see this very thing happen in Leviticus 10. The Israelites have built the tabernacle, the tent where God's presence is going to dwell, and God, God's presence does dwell inside of it. But Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, who are ministering before the Lord as priests, they come before the Lord, it says, in a way that he never prescribed. And then it says, actually, fire breaks out from before the Lord and consumes them, and they die on the spot. And so here God says, don't let them come too close, Moses, lest I break out against them and kill them. This is what happens when a sinner comes into the presence of a holy and righteous God without having their sin taken care of. The wrath of God breaks out against sin. God is so holy and so pure that in the presence of sin, his holiness manifests itself in wrath. Breaking out against sin. The entire Bible is trying to answer one question. And that question is, how can sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God without getting killed? How can sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God without dying? Phil Riken in his excellent Exodus commentary says, Every other religion answers this question in one of two ways. One of two ways. Every other religion. Either they overstate man's holiness. They make it out like we're better than we are. More capable of reaching up to God than we are. More holy than we actually are. And so some religions will say, no, you can do this. You can make your way to God. Other religions answer it by lowering God's holiness. Lowering God's standards. God's not really that hard to get to. God's not really got that big of a problem with sin. You can do this. You can get up to God because he's not really that holy. Only Christianity says God is so holy that he is transcendent and that none of us can reach up to him on our own. 
Only Christianity. Only Christianity says you are not holy enough for God. You're not. And you never will be on your own. On your own. The only way for people like that to be in the presence of a God like that without being killed is if God himself takes away their sin. God himself must take away our sin. And so the only answer to that question is Jesus Christ. Jesus. The only way that we can have our sin taken away and come into the presence of this holy and righteous God without dying is Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. Why? So that he could take the punishment for our sins. At the cross, our sins were counted against Jesus so that his righteousness could count for us. At the cross, our sins were counted against Jesus so they wouldn't be counted against us. So that anyone who comes to Christ in faith can receive the mercy and forgiveness of God, but not because God sweeps it under the rug, not because God says no big deal, only because God says now your sins have been paid for. By the blood of my own son, I poured out my wrath on my own son at the cross so that you could get off, so that you could go free, so that you could come into the presence of God. Jesus died so that you could have God when otherwise it is impossible. And so now we can rejoice to say how great is the love the Father has lavished on us That we might be called children of God, not because he just sweeps sin under the rug, not because he says sin's no big deal, but because he loved us so much that he sent his only son. And when it says he loved us so much, he sent his son, it means he put him on the cross and he crushed him. He poured out his wrath on his own son for me, for you. I want to draw your attention to one final detail in our passage today. Did you notice the trumpet? Did you notice that trumpet? Verse 16, there's a very loud trumpet blast. Verse 19, the trumpet grew louder and louder. Now, where does this trumpet come from? The Israelites were in the camp, heard this trumpet sound, looking around saying, who's blowing a trumpet? And nobody is. Where does it come from? This trumpet blast is a a way that God announces his presence. And we know that because we've seen this before. Or we should say we've seen it later. We see it later in our New Testaments. Have you ever been to a funeral where they read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16? Listen to this verse. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. It's talking about the return of Jesus. But there it is again, the trumpet announcing the presence of God. See, one day Jesus will come again. And the question is, are you ready to meet this God? When Jesus comes again, it will be time for all of us to meet our maker, to meet God 
Are you ready to stand before this God? Have you had your sins taken care of? Have you had your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus? Because if not, the only thing that you have to look forward to is God's wrath. On that day, the only ones who will escape God's wrath are those who have come to him for mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. Have you done so? Are you ready to meet your God? We're going to spend a few moments right now in silent prayer. Each week after our time in God's word, we offer a few moments for all of us to go to the Lord, to pray, and to to just reckon with whatever he has laid on our hearts, to respond to the way that God has spoken to us through his word. And so that's the time we're giving right now. We ask that you respond to the Lord in prayer privately, silently, and spend this time in prayer with him. And after a few minutes that we have to pray silently and respond to the Lord in that way, we'll come back. We'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to the the Lord's word in a public way can do so. Let's pray for a few moments.